Kristen Chu. Here. Uh, Kevin Hughes. Brian Larkin. Here. Brenda Quee McNulty. Here. Alexander Tonneson. Here. Item two, opportunity for the public to comment on any matters within the committee's jurisdiction that are not on the agenda. Seeing none, item three, election of chair and vice chair. Oh. Any nominations for I'd election? Like, uh, sure, I'd like to, well, nominate Brenda to, to be chair and vice chair uh, Kristen, or should we do these one at a time? Okay, I'm way ahead of myself then. I second the nomination of Brenda for chair. I third it. Note Mr. Hughes is in the room now. Oh, we saved him a seat. All in favor? Aye. 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 And I'd like to nominate uh, Kristen Chu as vice chair. Second. Second. All in favor? Aye. 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 Good. Thank you. Any public comment on the election? Seeing none, let's go on to the next item. Item four, approval with possible modification of the minutes of the May 21st, 2018 meeting. Any public comment on the meeting minutes? Seeing none, we'll nominate for approval. I, I move approval of the minutes. Second. Kevin, second. And the minutes are approved. Item five, presentation from the city services auditor regarding the CSA work plan and possible action by the committee in response to such presentation. Good morning, committee members. I'm Tanya Ledeju, Chief Audit Executive for the City Services Auditor of the Controller's Office, and I'm here today with my colleague, Peg Stevenson, Director of City Performance, to, provi to provide a quick overview of our work plan. So just really quickly, um, as you know, the City Services Auditor was established through an amendment to the City Charter back in 2003. As a result, we now have Appendix F of the City's Charter, which lays out certain mandated functions for CSA to complete. We receive a budget set aside of two-tenths of 1% uh, of, of the city's budget. This totals $18 million for the current fiscal year. We also receive GEO bond proceeds amounting to approximately $2 million, and we have a total of 68 FTEs in the total organization. 
And so the, this slide shows the large departments that comprise our work order budget for CSA. We cover our general fund departments, Department of Public Health, MTA, HSA, along with a host of other departments as listed here in our smaller departments as well throughout the city. Functionally, CSA has two units, so we have audits and we have city performance to ensure that we fulfill the charter mandate for Appendix F. And as it relates to our work plan process, it's actually driven by our charter and administrative code. We also do risk analysis and we receive information or requests from our executive leadership as well as our departments, and we have our bond and capital programs as well that dictate our work plan. Um, Tanya ran through that very quickly. You're all familiar with our planning process and mandates, but please ask either of us any questions at any time. Um, this slide just lists our major programs that are charter required, which you're familiar with. And I noted in the middle, we've talked about this in past meetings, but we are now growing our lean program. And that's probably our kind of biggest single addition to the capabilities of our unit in the last couple of years, where we're training a lot of city staff in lean methodology and then doing partnerships to do business process improvement with a lot of departments citywide. Um, the others you are familiar with, um, I will note also the Data Academy, which is a training program to teach um, city uh, staff basic software that they need for their jobs in a very simple format, Tableau and Excel. And we now teach some more complex things too, like R and uh, GIS classes being developed. And we're really proud of that. We hit the, uh, the, the three-year uh, mark in the five-year mark in three years in trying to grow the, that program. Um, Again, just to touch on a couple of our major projects, you saw a preliminary version of our work plan discussion at your May meeting. Um, and between then and now, we've finished out the process that um, Tanya just described. We've done our balancing. Um, we've tried to fit our uh, programs and projects. There's a Venn diagram, obviously, between the interests of the GOBOC committee and our plans. Um, and we'll touch on some more of those things in a little bit. But just to run down some of the major um, elements in the work plan for us for this year, Department of Public Health, probably the biggest single technology acquisition that the city is doing over the next couple of years are electronic health records. So we're working with them on that. At the Transportation Agency, we're just finishing a program which tries to simplify and streamline the noticing and public hearing processes for some of their uh, more simpler engineering and street design changes. We're supporting the city's capital planning department with a um, number of moves and changes and new building sites, the ongoing work to empty the Hall of Justice, the opening of a new city office building at 49 South Van Ness and a permit center that's gonna go in there, our two highlights. Our performance program, um, you've seen the growth of it in recent years with the addition of the performance scorecards. With the new mayor, um, we are interested in meeting and working with her and her staff on how she'd like to move forward in the performance program. We all anticipate, just based on preliminary discussions, that they'll be interested in taking some of the indicators that are shown in the performance scorecards and um, doing a process where her office works across city agencies to move those things forward. So she's very well aware of our program and we'll work with her on it. Uh, I mentioned the Data Academy. And then the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing now um, entering its 
third year of existence, right? Um, and we're still under the mandate, as are all city agencies, of helping them get stood up as well and efficiently as possible, getting all their contracts in place, helping them with challenges like the new software system that they're um, undertaking, building sites. Um, again, there's a lot of work that we can all do to help that work go successfully. Very important um, social purpose and a critical leadership issue for everyone in the city, so we work with them. And then I'll hand it back to Tanya to talk about audit programs. So good morning again. <clears throat> Just to adequately ensure that audits promote best practices and accountability, support informed policy decisions, and safeguard assets, the audits division's work plan represents a balanced portfolio of work based on risk. And the result of our work is high quality products that conform to industry audit standards and best practices. And as our city government activities, operations, and risk have become more complex, diverse, and interconnected over the years, our work plan has also grown to be more complex and robust with engagements that involve multiple agencies across functions citywide. And so, for example, we've developed our ongoing construction and capital audit program involving our Chapter 6 departments to reflect the city's increasing investment in capital projects. We've completed numerous varied construction audits, closeout, change orders, performance, and bond audits, along with risk assessments. We've also created our information technology cyber audit um, team to proactively assist departments in identifying improvements for safeguarding our critical IT systems and information, regulatory compliance, and redundancy. We have expanded our audit of key business processes that cut across all city departments. And to shed more light on critical multi-departmental light processes and associated risk, our work plan incorporates performance audits that involve multiple agencies to reflect the complexities and interconnectedness. And so this just gives a broad um, stroke overview of how our work at CSA audits has changed over the years since I've been here. And I'll discuss it a little more in um, depth. So in this coming year, we um, will be performing a number of constructions audits. As you know, this committee has asked us to do audits of the bonds to ensure that our bond spending is in compliance with the voter uh, mandates. And with that, we've enlisted the services of Cummings. And in the past year, Cummings has completed five for 2018 GO bonds. And this current fiscal year, we'll do four more GO bonds as you can see on the slides, and we'll also be conducting two construction audits of contract closeout procedures and completing a large performance audit at MTA on their capital program delivery. In our citywide compliance program, the overall goal of that program is to look at compliance, internal controls, and benchmark against best practices. And so as you can see on our slide, we'll touch processes such as the purchase cards, payroll, procurement, cash, and so forth and on. And we're conducting audits of nonprofit service providers to determine adherence to contract provisions, as well as to ensure that departments are properly monitoring our nonprofit organization um, contracts. We are currently... Um, conducting a performance audit that spans across seven departments regarding citywide monitoring practices for nonprofit organizations. And that audit will be done more than likely at the latter part of the fiscal year. 
We will continue with our performance audits as it relates to the mandated audits that are mandated by the administrative code, such as concession audits, political activities, and franchise fees. Our performance audits require that we not only look at whether departments are complying with policies, procedures, um, are doing their work in an economical, effective manner, but also it, we want to look from a perspective of forward thinking. And so we do that through our surveys and through our benchmarking of leading practices in the relevant areas to help our departments think about um, how they should go forward and to ensure that our recommendations are sound and to help city operations become better. So we'll be conducting audits of public health environmental health divisions around <clears throat> fees and permits, as well as looking at the ethical culture of the health inspectors. We'll be um, implementing a citywide inspections program at fire, at planning, and at building. And we'll also be looking at the ethical culture of our inspectors this coming year. We're going to look at operations of homeless shelters, staffing at the sheriff's office, citywide IT procurement, and public health um, city option program. And we will have a divisional audit at the PUC over their real estate department. As it relates to our information technology and cybersecurity work. We do that work in collaboration with our departments and other stakeholders, and we also work um, in collaboration with the Department of Technology with the City Information Security Officer. And so we'll continue our work around um, security and information controls audits across the city, as well as continuing with assisting with post-implementation services with the new financial um, and procurement system. And as Peg mentioned, the Health Department has the largest largest procurement ever from an information technology pers um, perspective in the city, and we'll also be working with the Department of Public Health around that um, implementation. And you'll hear later more about our whistleblower program, which is on my slide. We'll continue with our follow-up process. Um, the value in an audit is not the findings, but it's actually the implementation of the recommendations. And so we really work hard to ensure that we have a robust follow-up process. We follow up at every at six-month intervals to ensure that departments are implementing our recommendations. And I'm proud to say that our recommendation rate is 98% of our recommendations over a two-year period. Um, and we will continue with assisting with disaster recovery. And most of our work when we're having a disaster or the city is assisting with other disasters, we're ensuring that our records are intact and we're able to receive back um, the um, recover our cost as it relates to the services that our city has provided. And we're also doing audit work to support um, the Department of Police Accountability, the Ethics Commission, and at the Police Department. So that's a lightning quick run through of our work plan. Um, the narrative which is published on the website has a uh, high-level summary in major service area topics of our planned work. There's a table in the back, which is the largest, I think, 100? 100, 100 yes. audits and projects by size, the number of hours, staff hours we expect those things to take. Um, but just to remind everybody and for the public's benefit, the detailed work plan that is underneath that is a couple of hundred lines of different audits and projects that are linked to the work orders that are in our budget and each of the uh, assessments and risk out 
risk analyses that Tanya mentioned. We're happy to answer any questions that you might have on the either the general or the detail level of those and um, and discuss it if we have an audit that meets uh, or a project that meets a concern or an issue that you raise. We might have something in our work plan. We've certainly tried to fit what we do to the um, go box interests um, and mandates. One other project that I would mention in that vein is um, we do a wrap-up report about um, general obligation bonds, which you'll remember from last year. Um, we made a number of improvements to it, and you've um, included as an attachment to your annual report, um, which has summaries of scope, schedule, and budget for all the geo bond audit programs. And so those two uh, pieces of work go hand in hand. It serves our program purposes and serves yours as well. Um, so. I'll just stop there and ask if you have any questions or comments or um, feedback if you've had a uh, chance to look at the work plan and we're happy to respond to anything you'd like to raise. Yes, do you want to give a few words and then liaison report? Yes. Hey. <laughs> I'm the liaison to the CSA. Um, yeah, uh, I think we're at a $9 billion organization, I believe. 11. Uh, 11. Sorry, $11 billion organization. Um, and I think it can be uh, uh, hard to make these types of decisions in an organization as big. Um, and uh, I really applaud the thoughtfulness um, of uh, the group in, in making these. Um, they're not just sort of throwing darts at things. They're, they're actually following a, a specific um, process year over year. Um, uh, I think that process and the work of the of the group has resulted, um, in my opinion, as a is a very successful um, uh, body of work coming out coming out of both the audit side and and the performance side, um, and so uh, uh, I'm more than happy to endorse the the work plan um, for this year. Any other comments? I would like to. Uh, make a few comments. I would like to echo uh, what uh, we just heard, that this has been a, a very successful effort on the part of the audit committee. In fact, uh, I think the city is lucky to have the kind of leadership that it does from the, all of you all who are working on this. Um, uh, and I think that what I have seen is a, a growth in the approaches that you've taken to performance and audits. The issues that I uh, have been focused on more recently is that most of what we do, we approach as a city from the agency perspective. We look at how departments are functioning and what their mission is and are they meeting those missions. And that's the right thing for the city to do to evaluate whether the taxpayers are getting their, their, their worth. But there's another perspective and that's taking it from the other direction, from the direction of the citizen. So, for example, if you're looking at uh, uh, the Hall of Justice and the Capital Improvement Plan, uh, has, is there a process for input on what's needed from the standpoint of people who, who use that facility, not just the people who work there and whose job involves that? For example, for years it's been a hard time getting childcare facilities at the Hall of Justice, and yet jurors are expected to show up and have a place for their children while they're doing that. And there hasn't been a, there's been actual resistance to all of that kind of stuff. When you're looking at disaster uh, recovery, part of that is going to be uh, right off the beginning, as you know, trying to estimate what the costs are for uh, uh, replacing and repairing things that have been damaged. And 
the, when in 89, when I was involved in, in that earthquake recovery, the big issue was, of course, residential properties that were damaged and the need to decide whether or not someone could go back into those properties. And there were not enough city building inspectors to go around and do that. And so essentially, we deputized private building inspectors to go through and find whether the situation would warrant allowing someone in briefly to their house. So that makes me think, when we look at disaster re uh, responses, are we training uh, private building inspectors so that they're ready to go in the event of an earthquake? Because you don't have any advance notice that it's going to happen. So those are the kind of things that come up when you're looking at it from the perspective of the person who needs the services as opposed to the people who are providing the services. So uh, I had a list of, of uh, some examples that are cross-cutting in, in, in some ways uh, for specific subpopulations. Uh, I, I use disabled and seniors as one. I use uh, women as another. About what's happened to minorities, to African-American population in the city this declined from 12% to 5%. And what do we see about what the city has provided, either in housing inspection for the quality of housing that people have, or their transportation to get to jobs, or their schools, or whatever. It's, it's a whole lot of things. So my hope was that in today's meeting, uh, you would take from us, or and my colleague would concur, a request to come back with some proposals more specifically tailored to uh, a perspective of the, the resident uh, in a cross-cutting way. You've, got, you've made a lot of steps in that direction, and you sent me, uh, Peg did, an outline of what those are like. And they are, they are good, but they are, continue to be focused from the departmental perspective as opposed to the citizen perspective. And there are not too many places other than here where citizens have an opportunity to come and speak and raise those issues. So that was, that's my uh, proposal, is that we ask for uh, inclusion of cross-cutting, citizen-oriented uh, reviews. Any other uh, comment? I think, Robert, you had a comment. Well, I, I, again, I, uh, from I, I just go back and look at the mandate for uh, GoBox uh, authority or role in uh, oversight of the CSA, and it seems like it's a very limited scope to really basically review uh, benchmarks, uh, review uh, whistleblower issues, and review audits. I mean, to the extent those efforts cover uh, the citizen input, I, you know, we can we can look at that. But I I just I'm not sure I quite understand what that would mean or what specifically we're asking the controller's office to do with respect to our authority under the uh, charter mandate. As I understand the establishment of the CSA, it was part of a dissatisfaction with the city's performance on streets and sidewalks and parks. And so the proposal came originally from the Chamber of Commerce to Ed Harrington. And he outlined a program for auditing that included specifically those areas, and then sort of an add-on whatever else. So 
if you look at it from the genesis of this, it was very focused on the infrastructure of the city. It was not focused on the services of the city, except in the broadest sense. Uh, and so what I'm saying is that here we have gone now since, what was that, 2002, something like that. Uh, so uh, a decade and a half, a lot has changed in the city, both in terms of how many things the city needs to provide and in terms of a population that we have. Uh, and also, for the first time since 2002, we have a major change in the leadership of the city. This is the first mayor we've had who has come from a district election where they worked closely with residents in a particular neighborhood. It's the first time since that time that we have a board president who comes from a district that has income inequality and housing challenges and job challenges. And we also now have the city controller just reappointed to a new term. So it is a time to take a deep breath and just step back and see, do we want to look at this from a higher level? That's all I'm asking. Um, so, uh, my, my observation, um, Mr. Bush, is that while, while the, the points you make are worthy to be explored, um, I also heard um, Mr. Carlson's comments reminding this committee our very specific uh, function as relate to um, what, you know, uh, relating to our responsibility. So I, my comment and my take is that while these may be very issues and the timing, Mr. Bush, you mentioned, I think this may be a time for the city, some aspects of city governance to be looking at this, but I don't really think GOBOC is the correct vehicle to, um, to explore these because our mandates are very specific. So I think that uh, if, if you have a wish to, to explore these changes to CSA's function, um, this, this is not the right venue to do so. I think that you may go to the Board of Supervisors to change these, these responsibilities or, or to increase these additional aspects of audit and performance done by, by, by the controller's office. I don't see anything in the charter that precludes us from taking these steps. I think that you're taking a very limited view of what's the language. So I don't think we're precluded when we say we're going to do performance audits. What are we, what are we exactly auditing? And I'm not even suggesting that I have the answers or even know exactly where it should go. I'm just asking <coughs> that the CSA staff come back and give us their ideas on what else they see they might add. So just a suggestion which might help. I mean, I had um, sent a, a couple of examples, and we've talked about this before in these hearings, where I agree that the opportunity to work in an interdepartmental way is one of the huge advantages of our function. And we try to take that seriously and staff things which need staffing the um, Healthy Streets Outreach Center was the example I had emailed where this is all the departments that are working together to respond to homelessness, street behavior, mental health, substance abuse, and the intersecting service and resource demands that are represented by that. There's a, new, a, a operational function at the 1011 Turk Street. We're providing the staff and measurement resource support so that they are able to 
measure what they're doing, um, show results. This is an example of you know an, the, the interdepartmental work, citizen-focused work as well. I guess the probably example that pops up first in my mind is the work we're doing for the permit center, which is very explicitly designed to be from the citizen and user point of view. When you come into that new place that the city will open in a couple of years, what's your experience, not from the silo of building inspection or fire or planning or anybody else that's issuing a permit, but understanding how the users are going to interact with that space and use it as a permit center. So I think we're doing a lot of things that meet this concern. Um, I guess one suggestion I had which might help uh, bring the thoughts together is, you know, we, like I said, we're, we've made a bunch of improvements to our performance measurement program, including the scorecards, which are supposed to focus on um, major service areas and be cross-cutting across departments. The new mayor's only recently taken office. We really haven't been able to sit down with she and her staff to look at how she wants to use that information and design uh, performance work for herself. We could have that conversation and bring back to you a discussion of the performance scorecards and how they relate with these concerns. Um, that would be fine to do if, if you have another specific suggestion, but that's one that did occur to me listening to this conversation. Yeah, yeah, and I would just add in our packet today, we have the uh, GOBOC facility, facilities user perception survey that this committee had asked the controller. So that's definitely, I think, a citizen-centric kind of uh, <coughs> input. So again, my feeling is if any member here has an interest in something from that perspective, like Larry, let the controller's office know and they'll review that. And But I don't know that, that GOBOC has a needs to take a specific action on that at this point? I, um, for me, I think there's two aspects to this. One is, um, uh, uh, one is uh, are we communicating that? That I mean, you, you can tell us, I mean, you, you just very succinctly talked about this, the streets program and how that, you know, multi-agency doing um, that. And so, or, and the second aspect is, are we going to ask CSA to do something different, right? So but let's, let's just take the, the first part. Um, uh, this could be just a communications issue. Um, so if you take the streets perspective, um, there's a number, I mean, from Peg's email from earlier, there's, there's a number of things that are happening across multiple, multiple agencies. Um, and could we tell that story to our citizens in a way that makes sense. I mean, I, one of the things we've, we've been struggling for months is what our website says. How do we, how do we say something on our website that, that people can really understand and, and, and adds value to them? You know, really, really it touches their lives. Um, we know there's lots of things that are happening that are touching their lives, and we know that the city is working on um, some of our most important issues um, around the homelessness or, or housing or whatever. Um, in fact, a lot of those efforts, some of those efforts are supported by the bond program. We're building housing because we have a housing problem, um, and so I, you know, my recommendation was would be to um, ask the CSA to think about how, how do we tell a how do we tell a comprehensive story, um, even with a dashboard. You're still um, requiring the user to make sense of that dashboard. So let's let's just make it as easy as we possibly can. Um, now, I, you know, this is an idea, and I, I would strongly recommend we try it out. See if, see if we can tell a story on a specific issue um, about what's actually happening now. Not, not even ask the CSA to do anything new or different, but say, let, let, let's take something and look at it more comprehensively and tell, see if we can tell a relevant story. Um, and I, I think that if, if it's one of those situations that's related to a bond, um, then it could be within the, um, we, we could fund it ourselves. 
um, because we're because we are, are supposed to be explaining what, what the value of the bonds are to our to um, to the citizens. And so I would love to to not just explain the value of one bond and why we're putting up that building, but how that how that really is how how an issue is being dealt with um, across the city, both from a from a bond perspective, from a services perspective, et cetera, et cetera. Does that I, would, I like that, and uh, I think that uh, putting a focus on a more robust website is unquestionably a helpful step in that because if you go onto our website now, you go to the controller and then you have to say about us and then you go through a list of, I don't know, a half dozen different things that the controller's office does and you find out of that that one of them is the, is the GOBOC and then you click on that and you go to their agenda but you don't really go to anything that tells you what is GOBOC and what is our mission and how are we doing it. If you know to go to the performance things, that's different. But so I think a more robust thing that also would include, I would hope, an opportunity for public to submit comments, um, so that they can also have input at the in, at the beginning point of our process, would be the kind of communication that I would like to see take place. I just uh, want to underscore that what I see as uh, our performance is not just what's happening necessarily with a city agency. For example, Mr. Carlson and I went and looked at, at some of the bond issues on housing. Uh, and we asked about what was the timetable? Were we meeting the timetable? And it was running, I don't know, six to eight months behind. And it was running behind, not because of the city, but because of PG&E. That PG&E was not moving on a timetable to get things connected up. So how do we let the public know that while you had an expectation that this was gonna be completed at this time, it's not happening and the reason it's not happening is not because the city is falling down on the job. It's because we have partners who are involved in all of this <coughs> and they don't always meet the same timetable that we had hoped for. And that I just use them as one example. It could have been DPW and getting streets and sewers in in the area and I don't know what they were. But so when you talk about uh, looking at this and what the city is doing, I would just add to go one step beyond the city agency, but to all of those who are part of us meeting our job. Let me comment. That's a, that's a good point. And, and specifically to your example about why it was late, it's really not the city, but it's, you know, it's another party, PG&E. Now, for that example, when the housing bond people make their presentation to discuss what's on time, what's not on time, their materials that are being presented to this committee, it's posted on our website. So if a concerned citizen has the interest to go to our website to look at that particular housing bond or, or type housing in this matter, they'd be able to read for themselves the progress report that this committee hears. So I think that um, what Ms. Chu mentioned that, um, that in our website, we just had a um, overhaul. I think it's better organized now. And perhaps what we could work with uh, the controller staff is to somewhere um, feature some stories, you know, but someone's got to write some I impactful story that talks not just about the, um, the numbers of the bond, but some benefit or lack thereof of, of a bond 
that the voters have voted for. So this could be, uh, like Ms. Chu said, a matter of communication. So in our website, we could further, hopefully maybe this year, have an area where we could direct the reader to some success stories or some stories that are of a more human nature, if you will. I, I'm glad to hear that. I, I, I support that. One of the things that I keep coming back to about GOBOC is that unlike other commissions that I've seen and that I've been involved in, this commission represents people from a variety of backgrounds and perspectives. You all have different kinds of skills and you bring those perspectives to the job of looking at what GOBOC is doing, whether it's uh, construction understanding or if it's uh, uh, labor union issues, whatever it is, the GOBOC is set up by charter to have appointees that come from different perspectives. And I can't think of another commission that does that as completely as GOBOC does. So when you talk about the review and all this, I hope that that would also include an early opportunity for members of, of GOBOC to provide input from their perspective, because it's valuable. Well, you Madam could be Chair. the first to support, to, to, you know, uh, to offer to um, control of staff who staffs our, who, who manages our website, you know, any specific ideas that you would like to see in that website. I'm sorry. No problem, no problem. Um, I am wondering that this is on the agenda as the CSA work plan and possible action by the committee. Um, and if, if it requires a motion to approve the CSA work plan as presented, I would, uh, make that motion, assuming discussion is ended on matters outside of the agendized item that we are currently on. Yes, thank you for keeping us yes. <laughs> proper to our proceedings. No, I will no second. Problem. I'll second the motion. Well, I wanted to ask a question. Oh, we not related to expansion of our purview. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, I think this is for you, Peg. Tanya, if it's really for you, forgive me. But Peg, um, on page seven under city performance, there's the middle column lean. Could you remind me what that means? I mean, I know, pardon me, I'm familiar. Familiar is too strong a word. I'm aware of lean construction management practices, but I don't know what it means in this context here. It's not an acronym. It just means lean as in, you know, slim and efficient. Um, yeah, that's what it means in construction. <laughs> I mean, it was all caps at the heading of the thing. And I yeah, think, oh, no, it, it's an acronym. It probably but makes people it think it's an acronym. Not. It's not. Yeah. Um, and as we mentioned, our program is it's modeled on the original Toyota production uh, design theory, slimmed down a lot and made simpler and fit to the purposes of municipal government. But what we're doing is teaching and training people how to analyze business processes and improve them from their um, own perspective. That makes sense. Okay, and, and one other question. Um, on performance auditing, you look at um, what the nonprofit organizations and how their performance. Do you also look to see that there's overlap or coordination among the scopes of work for those nonprofit organizations? Because I know the city spends lots of money, particularly with, you know, with nonprofits on homeless services, but I'm not confident that there isn't that overlap between them or that there is coordination among them. 
The joint monitoring program, part of its design is expressly for that reason. So any nonprofit that has a contract with more than one city department, so Walden House, for example, contracts with DPH and um, housing and homelessness and supportive housing and maybe others, they work together on the monitoring of that agency. So the uh, agencies, the staff people that work on it, they plan the site visit together, they pull and look at documents together, they do their reviews together. Again, th this is primarily on financial and compliance issues. Yeah. Programmatic uh, monitoring can occur separately, but we're confident that all of the agencies that have a contract with the same CBO are aware of each other's work at minimum. Okay. But I think I heard you say that you're more looking just to see that they're, that the nonprofits are conforming to what their scope is, that they, whatever the grant, restrictions on the grant are, whatever the provisions on the grant. Financial and compliance issues across several issues, um, tax filings, board meetings, uh, public information and transparency, complaint processes, ADA, um, filing budgets, things like that. So anything in the financial and compliance world. So that's one bucket. Programmatically, you know, quality and caseloads for foster care workers. That's not in the joint monitoring effort, which is not to say that it's not happening. Mm -hmm. It's not happening in our program. Yeah. But the city agencies who monitor CBOs um, each have a compliance, a program compliance effort separately. Yeah, because, you know, I guess in the interest of full disclosure, I'm on the board of, of a nonprofit, a, a CBO. Um, so to, pardon me, um, Southeast Asian Community Center, and they recently did have a city audit, but it was just looking at process. You know, it wasn't looking to see that there wasn't another agency right across from the street from us that are doing the same thing, and that there, there was overlap between us and them. So I've, that's really what my, what my concern is. Well, was. I would add that the large agencies that do most of the contracting with CBOs, they have very robust um, needs assessment processes. So some of them are prescribed in the charter, children's services, for example, mm -hmm. um, where they have to go on a three-year cycle to go out and do a lot of research, demographic analysis, service analysis, look at what's met and unmet in the community, and try and fit the next RFP that they issue for CBOs to respond to, to their, what they see in their research. So it sort of touches on Larry's issue, too. There's a lot of robust research and service design that goes into both the city's own service delivery and its CBO contracting. It's not necessarily be, being done in the controller's office, yes. but any one of the city's major important human service areas, aging and adult services is like that, services for children is like that, services for the disabled is like that. There are others that I know less about, but I, I would say that there's very robust research and needs assessment processes underlying those uh, service program designs. Well, I hope so, but I, th I think the short answer to my question is that you're more looking at performance and there's other people looking at, at what I was asking about. All right. It is a lot of money. You know, when we looked at it from uh, city contractors, the total amount of money going to nonprofits from the city budget is pretty close to a billion dollars. Yeah, it's, it's a bunch of money, and yeah, that's a billion partly dollars why I'm asking. in my world. Yeah. yeah, a billion here, a billionaire, pretty soon you're talking yeah, about I real don't, money. I've heard that before. Yeah. Dirksen, I think. <laughs> All right. Is there any public comment on this topic? 
Good morning. My name is Jerry Drattler. The CSA operating budget was about $8.5 million a few years ago and has increased about 100% to $19 million. The FTE count has grown from about 50 FTEs to 68 FTEs, a 35% increase. What additional services are the citizens of San Francisco receiving from the increased level of funding? And are the services the ones outlined in Appendix F? Reporting on the source of CSA funding by department is of no value. The best practice method, method in measuring government effectiveness and answering this question is to look at the input payroll hours and look at the output audits and performance audits. See, Goldbach and the citizens of San Francisco deserve this information. Why is this important? Disaster recovery, supporting the infrastructure weaknesses of local nonprofits, department training and system implementation, and capital planning support are not requirements of Appendix F. Enumerated requirements of Appendix F are not being addressed. I'd like to present my audit of Appendix F requirements and whether the CSA is fulfilling all of these requirements in a future meeting. Is it possible for me to get time on a future meeting agenda to present my audit? I have been told the annual audit work plan is risk-based. This risk analysis had never been presented to CGOBAC, and there is no way of determining how the proposed audit plan addresses known risks. I recommend the CSA prepare the recommended input-output analysis and present the analysis at the next CGOBAC meeting. Thank you. Any additional public comment? Good morning, committee members and uh, Ms. Lettigeu and Ms. Stevenson. I'm Dr. Derek Kerr, a whistleblower. In response to public comments made before this very body several years ago, CSA's whistleblower program agreed to track and report the outcomes of whistleblower retaliation claims that were investigated by the Ethics Commission. So far, all of these reports show zero sustained retaliation claims. In fact, the Ethics Commission has never sustained a whistleblower retaliation claim since it began looking at them in June of 1995. Zero in 23 years is far below the international benchmark that is published by Navex Global, which I believe was about 10% um, a year or two ago. Even OSHA's discredited whistleblower program sustains 3% of retaliation claims. But here in San Francisco, we are to believe that whistleblower retaliation doesn't occur. The CSA should consider an audit of the Ethics Commission 
and how it handles whistleblower retaliation claims and why it just can't sustain any, which means that whistleblowers have to sue the city, have to go to court, and that's where they get validation at taxpayer expense. Thank you. Any additional public comment? Seeing none, can we pass on to the next item on the agenda? Item six, presentation from the city service auditor regarding the um, whistle. Excuse me, uh, uh, procedurally, do we need to vote to accept the presentation? Yes. No, there's a motion pending. Yes. To adopt the work plan as presented. So you need to call the motion and vote it. Yeah. That's right. That's correct. These two. Yes. Who's on the motion to approve Who? CSA? So the motion on the floor is to approve the CSA work plan as presented. All those in favor? All in favor? Does that are you interpreting that to include the comments that were made by the CSA staff to us as part of the presentation? The motion is to accept the presentation as presented by uh, CSA. So you're interpreting that to include their comments about how they will move forward on yes, other aspects. That would, in right. that would include their intentions of moving forward as, uh, as articulated as by PEG. Thank you. All in favor? Aye. 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 Motion's passed. Next item, please. Item six, presentation from the city services auditor regarding the whistleblower program and possible action by the committee in response to such presentation. Good morning, Tanya Lettajou, chief audit executive for city services auditor. So today our presentation is actually an update on the whistleblower program activities and initiatives through fiscal year 2017-18. We last presented in front of this committee in November, on November 20th, 2017, at which time we reviewed fiscal year 2017-18 activities through quarter one. So in advance of today's presentation, um, the whistleblower program staff supported regular meetings with C. Gobach liaisons. Our most recent meeting was with Chair Brenda Kiwi McNulty and Larry Bush on August 1st. Thank you for your patience. Technology is wonderful. So for the benefit of just doing a quick overview, our first slides will be pretty quick. And we'll talk about the whistleblower program's authority, jurisdiction, and our role in ensuring a well-run city government. So our authority is derived from California Government Code 53087.6, San Francisco Charter Appendix F1, 107 and San Francisco Campaign and Governmental Conduct Code. And 
California Government Code 53087.6 empowers a city and county auditor controller to maintain a whistleblower program to receive information regarding allegations of fraud, waste, or abuse by local government employees. Our campaign and governmental code Conduct Code Article 4 implements Charter Appendix F and directs the controller as city services auditor to administer a whistleblower program. And Appendix F requires the controller to administer, administer a whistleblower program as well. So the city and state law requires the whistleblower program to investigate and resolve four broad categories of complaints. Specifically, these categories are the misuse of city funds, improper activities by city officers and employees, deficiencies in the quality and delivery of government services, and wasteful and inefficient government practices. As Tanya mentioned, um, there are four very broad categories of complaints that we're required to receive, track, and when appropriate, investigate. However, there are some also some categories of complaints that the whistleblower program is required by law to refer. And I'll go over those and try and give you some examples. Uh, the first is complaints which another city department is required by federal, state, or local law to adjudicate. An uh, example of this may include perhaps a complaint about Workers' compensation, that falls under the jurisdiction by local law of the Department of Human Resources, um, as do complaints regarding uh, discrimination or harassment based on a protected category. Those would be examples of complaints that we'd refer because of requirements by local law. Next are complaints which may be resolved through a grievance mechanism established by a bargaining unit or contract. Um, for example, sometimes if we get a complaint about an employee uh, complaining about their schedule or the hours they were assigned, uh, typically that's something that can be resolved through their bargaining uh, agreement, and we would instruct the employee that they need to bring that up through the grievance mechanism established through their union. Allegations involving violations of criminal law, um, we would refer those complaints to the district attorney or other appropriate law enforcement agency. Uh, complaints that are subject to existing ongoing investigations by the district attorney, city attorney, or ethics commission, uh, sometimes complainants file their allegations in multiple issues. We want to ensure that there's no duplication of efforts and that the appropriate city departments are investigating. Uh, so when we get confirmation from those departments that they're investigating and our duplication would impede or delay their own, we'd refer the matter to their department and close it on our end. And uh, lastly, allegations which involve violations of governmental ethics laws would be referred to the Ethics Commission and City Attorney for appropriate action. Um, programs like the whistleblower program serve many purposes, uh, most importantly providing individuals a confidential place where they can report their concerns. Um, whistleblower programs are a critical internal control, often noted as an operating credit rating strength when well implemented by municipalities. We allow complaints to be submitted anonymously and whistleblower investigations stop improper conduct and prevent further violations and reveal all relevant facts so that management can make fully informed decisions on how to best proceed. Recapping some of the activities for fiscal year 1718, uh, we came into the fiscal year with 54 complaints open. It was a busy year for us as we received 466 complaints this past fiscal year. We closed 438 of them and began the new fiscal year with 82 complaints open. 
Um, in terms of our volume, the number of complaints received was a 12% increase from the 415 complaints that we received in fiscal year 1617. Um, of the complaints that we closed, the majority of them were closed within 90 days. It's the goal of the whistleblower program to close 80% of our complaints within 90 days. Complaint volume has increased year over year since fiscal year 1213. Uh, whistleblower program complaint volume cannot be attributed to one single factor. One factor that can influence the number of complaints that we receive is outreach campaigns. And the controller's office uses multiple forms of communication to make employees and members of the public aware of the whistleblower program. Complainants also have the option of filing their complaints uh, online, which is our most popular way of receiving complaints, but they can also send us emails, come in in person through telephone calls via to us directly or through 311 or fax or, hand, or letters as well. The multiple intake channels ensure that the whistleblower program is readily accessible to potential complainants and available to them in a manner which they are comfortable. Uh, the majority of the complaints that we receive are anonymous, but the whistleblower program takes anonymous complaints very seriously. To manage the sustained high number of reports that we've received, the program has a multidisciplinary team that collectively possesses the experience and expertise to address the broad range of allegations that we receive. So with the increased number of complaints, not only this year, but in the past couple years as well, we're starting to analyze uh, the the volume and the trends within the disposition of closed complaints. Uh, year over year from fiscal year 16 to 17, the actual number of complaints that were closed or investigated before they were closed decreased 11%. And uh, notably, the number of complaints that were referred to a department of charter jurisdiction increased 8%. Um, I don't think, you know, when looking at why perhaps some of these are occurring, I think it has to do with the accessibility and availability of the whistleblower program um, being put out there to city employees and making them aware of the existence of the program. And I think that can account for some of the increase in complaints that we refer to other departments. We receive um, these complaints and we're serving as a central point of intake. And uh, that's not a bad thing, I don't think, as it allows us to assist, uh, identify systemic issues and risk trends throughout the city. In our quarterly reports, we've begun publishing statistics on the number of complaints investigated and closed by departments with more than 200 employees. Um, some factors I think that can influence the number of investigations at a department include the size and scope of their operations. In terms of aging of closed complaints, the whistleblower program understands it's important for complaints to feel that their concerns are important and seriously considered, and so we make every effort to complete investigations in a timely manner. We understand that if complaints are not resolved in a timely manner, complainants may conclude that their allegations are not being taken seriously. Resolving incident reports consistently and timely helps build employee trust. In fiscal year 1718, uh, we closed 374 of our 40, 438 complaints, or 85% in 90 days or less. There are several factors that can influence the length of an investigation beyond 90 days. These factors include the number of allegations in a complaint, the number of witnesses and subjects involved in the complaint, the need to coordinate our investigative efforts amongst multiple departments, and sometimes the time it takes to gather documentation and other evidence from multiple sources. Going into the new fiscal year, as I mentioned, there were 82 complaints open on June 30th, 2018. Um, 
The majority of these complaints at 71% have been open for less than 90 days. I get the wonderful opportunity to talk about Steve a little bit in public. And um, in February 2018, Steve and the program were recognized by the California Society of Municipal Finance Officers for the Whistleblowers Program's outreach and education efforts and awarded the Whistleblower Program with the 2018 Innovation Program Award. And there was an article actually published that you can also look at at CSMFO's um, website. So we're really proud of that accomplishment. And then as it relates to the various initiatives, we have four um, bulletins that we issued in 2017-18. And we really believe that to have a high substantiation rate um, to be achieved, we need to have well-informed reporters so that they make high-quality reports that can be effectively investigated. It's very difficult to investigate claims when the information is really sporadic. And sometimes even when we reach back out to the complainant, we don't always get a response. And so when we have enough information, we're able to really work the claim. And so that's really important in our program. We want to ensure that we give every complaint the attention deserved and we want to work those complainants. So this initiative, as it relates to putting out these bulletins, really has helped um, our complainants to give full, full disclosure of what they believe has occurred. Also, the whistleblower program uses a co-sourced investigation model to resolve reports. And whistleblower program staff leads certain investigations, whereas others may be referred to another city department involved in the allegation or with jurisdictional oversight for investigation and response. So coordinating with other departments, using their expertise, um, leverage, and leveraging resources at other departments also ensures that allegations are resolved in a timely manner. And so management of the departments associated with the report must be report, must report to the whistleblower program on any action taken in response to the report. So just like in our audit process, we have a follow-up process and a response process with the whistleblower program. They have 60 days to respond to us once they have received a complaint. We follow up. I will assure you that even after receiving that information, we um, just go over the investigation with a fine-tooth comb. We ensure that the facts are appropriate, the evidence is appropriate, and if we have any questions, we do follow-up. And there have been times that we have launched an additional investigation on the work already performed. So we really are careful about the work performed, not only within our own group, but as well as with the investigators at the departments. So the whistleblower program ha um, has also focused on investigation excellence by collaborating with and disseminating hotline and investigation best practices to jurisdictions throughout North America. So we have hosted our fraud um, webinars, and we had four this past year, and we will have additional um, 
webinars in this current fiscal year. If you're interested, let us know and we will add you onto our list. Um, we do record those webinars, so if you're not able to actually sit in while it's live, you can have an opportunity to review um, after the webinar has actually occurred. And that will be it for today. Thank you. Just, uh, just one quick question. Are any of the CSA staff certified fraud examiners currently? Yes, they all are. Oh, great. Going back, uh, Tanya, to slide eight, um, disposition of closed complaints. Um, the number is in the second and third rows referred to a department with charter jurisdiction and merged with another complaint um, for fiscal year 16, 17, that total 25%, and then it's up for fiscal 17, 18 to 31%. In those cases, you have found something, or at least found something that indicates that there should be further investigation. Is, is that not right? No. Oh. So uh, generally, with the first category referred to a department with charter jurisdiction, the complaint has come into us. Upon our review of the allegations and the information provided, we recognize that the complaint needs to be investigated by another city department. They have jurisdiction over the matter. So we'd inform the complainant that of, of that being the case, that it's under the jurisdiction of the, another department, and we would work with the complainant to have the issue addressed by the other department or refer that complaint to the other department for investigation. For example, it might need to go to the district attorney. It might need to go to the Department of Human Resources. Okay, all right. So it would be someone other than, what is it, the fox guarding the hen house kind of thing, where they're... The DA's office is independent, so if there were a complaint about Muni and, it went, and you decided that it should go to the DA, then the DA has jurisdiction. You know, you, you, not that you've given up on it, not that you've made any finding one way or the other, just that, okay, this is, this is their purview. Correct. And, and merge with another complaint is similar. So with those complaints, um, it's not uncommon or not unheard of for the whistleblower program to receive multiple, multiple complaints about the same incident. Uh -huh. Perhaps multiple people witnessed it, multiple people then decided to file a complaint. The allegations are the same, the subject of the complaint is the same. We wouldn't investigate the complaints separately. We would merge them into one complaint and investigate it at the same time. So, but the rest of these things, like outside of jurisdiction, in well, investigated and closed, does that, does that give me any indication of whether there was wrongdoing, or does it just mean we looked at it and this is our conclusion, yay or nay? In and of itself, investigated and closed would not indicate whether the allegations were substantiated and whether they represent a violation of, or potential violation of city rules. Mm -hmm. Uh, we do publish some statistics related to that in our quarterly reports, um, but investigated and closed just broadly says allegations were presented to us. We did look into them, and uh, we collected sufficient evidence to <coughs> to take appropriate right. action on that complaint. So I wouldn't infer results from this, just, you know, that you looked at it and you're done. Right. Okay. So if you go to our an our quarterly reports, mm -hmm. there you'll have... We're, they're more broken down as it relates to we will report out on some of the allegations 
that were sustained. Okay. That's all. I have a question. Please. If I might. Um, a member of the public earlier in this morning's meeting suggested that um, that authority of jurisdiction for uh, claims or assertions of retaliation land under the Ethics Commission, and that since they have had authority of jurisdictions on those assertions, that they have had findings of zero, uh, zero findings of retaliatory action based on a whistleblower complaint. And, and a member of the public suggested that, well, maybe that should be audited. Um, so my question is, in my mind, if they have no findings, they have no findings. I mean, it, zero is zero. That, the question is then, well, was it appropriate or not? Um, and their findings are their findings. Uh, whether, like any, any overview board, what, what their findings are, are their findings. If you want to challenge those, that person then challenges them in court. Um, I don't know what more uh, an audit would produce other than a finding of zero or five or whatever it happens to be. Um, and I'm wondering if you see any benefit beyond that um, as far as that would warrant an audit. What, to audit the Ethics Commission's findings, uh, the merit of their findings, I don't know how you do that. So from our perspective, if I just apply the audit standards as it relates to independence. From an independent perspective, as an auditor who has a relationship with this agency in terms of the whistleblower program and they're the firewall, we have the firewall, they handle retaliation. In order to maintain that firewall, that independence, it would not be advisable that I, the city service auditor, would audit the ethics investigation program because I already have a firewall where they're responsible to look into the retaliation claims and I'm the receiver of complaints from a whistleblower. So in order to maintain that independence, if someone should determine that an audit needs to take place, it needs to take place outside of the controller's wall. I understand. To maintain the independence of the whistleblower program. I understand. Thank you. I am the rep on this committee assigned to this program, so I'd like to just say a few words. Um, um, well, I, met, I meet regularly with the uh, program manager, and we met recently. Um, at these meetings, um, we go through the statistics that this committee sees. Uh, questions are asked, uh, and I have been uh, overseeing this program uh, for the last couple of years. Uh, first of all, I continue, based on these discussions and based on the um, data and reports that I have read, um, I continue to be um, have great confidence that the actual process um, of the investigation um, is very sound. Um, and you have heard, um, in addition to that, the type of follow-ups and the regularity that uh, the whistleblower, pro pro 
staff um, conducts just to make sure that um, if they do refer complaints to other departments, there is regular follow-up to that department to make sure that the investigative process is continued. Um, the other area of follow-up is also their recommendations to, uh, in, a, in a certain case, where they recommend some action be taken, they also take the time to follow up to that um, department to make sure that those recommendations are indeed carried out. So I, uh, I, I continue to have high confidence that this, the process of investigating these claims are carried out efficiently and in a very timely manner. You can see the statistics for yourself. Uh, the other thing, I do commend um, the innovation and the professionalism of the whole staff, in particular the manager, uh, Steve. Uh, he, has, he has initiated both the internal training program, which is necessary because, as Tanya says, the more informed city employees are, the better the quality of the actual complaints. And the second initiative that Steve has um, started is this, is the webinar programs. Um, I have attended most of these uh, programs, and they are very, uh, they're very instructive. And what he has done is to really um, source different types of professionalism in the industry so that his staff and other people could be shared. So I think the combination of an internal and external areas of increased training has, um, has really raised the level of professionalism and competence his group um, has achieved. So I, I commend both of them. Uh, and Steve, the other thing I would like you to um, share with with the committee is, um, and it's a question we've asked you before, is that a lot of times the aging, um, in that chart where you have the aging, there are a couple of one or two cases that have extended uh, um, beyond, I guess, a year or close to a year. Can you just explain to the rest of this committee why there are some cases that take so long to investigate and close? can speak in general to some of the factors. Uh, sometimes it has to do with the availability of the city employees. Sometimes the city employees out on leave for a long period of time and uh, we just don't have access to them. That could be one factor. Um, the other factor is to do sometimes with the number of allegations in the complaint. One complaint does not necessarily equal one allegation. Some complaints contain up to 20 different allegations and sometimes the scope of those allegations runs uh, from everything to cut poor customer service to financial mismanagement or poor operations. So going through that and making sure that each of the allegations is addressed can sometimes uh, take a deal of time. Um, sometimes the complexity of the allegations mentioned, um, it's, sometimes it's a complaint that we cannot refer over to a department. Just it just would not be appropriate organizationally for them to look into the matter and report back to us. So in that case, we have to build up our expertise of the department's operations, maybe understand the contracts and the contract provisions and uh, uh, mentioned in the allegations or understand a grant agreement. So that can add time to an investigation as well. Um, sometimes, I think as Tanya mentioned, you know, we reach out to a complainant. Uh, they indicate they have evidence. 
um, and we make efforts and arrangements to try and obtain that evidence, but it just, um, stuff comes up, it's not always brought forth uh, as fast as we like, so, but, so we have to keep pursuing that in those avenues. And also, sometimes a complaint, we've done the work and it's ready to go, and then there's a whole another process on the department side, potentially at the city attorney's side, just policies and procedures that must be followed before it can be completely closed out. So there are a gamut of things that hold up a complaint, but again, as we've assured, we pay close attention and we're moving them as fast as possible, but we also work within a structure that afford certain rights to all employees as well. Thank you. Any comments from? I'd like to say something. I, I accepted uh, Brenda's invitation to sit in on the last briefing on the whistleblower program. And uh, I have a couple of uh, observations from all of that. First of all, I think there's no question that the outreach that you've done has resulted in an increased number of compl complaints coming in. I think that that's exactly what needed to happen. It's what we've seen happen with some other agencies. And it's a, it's a good thing because of two things. People need to know if there's something going on that's wrong. And secondly, we need the public to believe that filing a complaint matters and gets some sort of results. So it, it improves public confidence. When in talking uh, in the briefing that they provided, we discussed that there are other complaints that don't come to the whistleblower. As you said, there are things that get referred on. So if it's a, in some places a workplace issue, it goes to DHR. Uh, in some cases, if it's a sex harassment case, it can go to the Commission on the Status of Women. It can go to the Department of Human Rights. I was, uh, I, I, know I always sound like I was there in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, but I was there when they created the whistleblower program back 30 years ago, and it did start off as a part of the mayor's office. And then when the Ethics Commission was created, it was transferred to ethics. And then after a while, people felt that ethics wasn't doing anything with the whistleblower program. So Ed Harrington asked that it be transferred over to the controller's office at the time they did Prop F. So that became a split thing where they would say, well, we'll keep retaliation with ethics and uh, keep the investigations with the controller because the controller does do investigations. Meanwhile, if it was a workplace issue, it was going to go to DHR. And if it was a criminal issue, it could go to the, to the uh, district attorney. Uh, Commissioner Hughes asked about the investigations at the ethics on retaliation that none of them had been found. It's, it not necessarily mean that nothing happened. It was most often that ethics determined that it had no jurisdiction. So, for example, complaints were coming in about wrongdoing in city bond measures where there was a, uh, a contractor and the contractor would file a complaint that they were being told something and the and ethics would say, we have no jurisdiction and so it would be dismissed. And, and so what, if you are doing an audit, you would not necessarily look at did they fail to find something or but rather the question is, did they have the jurisdiction and what needs to be done to make sure that the jurisdiction exists. I asked DHR, which is supposed to provide regular reports on the complaints that they get on workplace problems, and I got back somewhere between 50 and 100 findings, most of which involved settlements for city workers. It was very impressive that 
all of these complaints are going on and we don't even know about it. I mean, not at Gobach, but just in general. I've never seen a newspaper article even about any of it. All of this led me to think that it would be a good idea at this point to ask for an outside audit of how our whole system works of ensuring that people are protected if they file a complaint of something wrong and that complaints are followed through in the right places. Because you have these different pieces that were not created intentionally to be different, but because somebody fell down over here and somebody fell down over there, and so it all got split off for one reason or another. And I say that now because three years ago, the civil grand jury, uh, I am the appointee here from the civil grand jury, uh, found that the ethics, uh, the whistleblower program needed to be revamped. And they sent that to the ethics commission and the chair of the ethics commission asked me to work with them on drafting a response, which was then done. That's been, was sent by the civil grand jury three years ago, sent by ethics to the board two years ago. And in two years, there has never been a single hearing, mostly because different city agencies, whether it's the DHR or the controller or ethics or somebody else, have been having discussions behind closed doors that the public has not seen what the issues are that are being fleshed out. So my belief is that it's time for us to use our funds to have an outside audit of the whole universe of how all of this is working and is it accomplishing its purposes. So I'm putting that out on the table. I had a, a, a message I wrote about that to go to each of, of us. By the way, I did send some stuff to everybody on the GOBOC. It's my understanding that I'm, I can do that as long as I'm willing for that to become a public document. It doesn't become a question of a public meeting unless people are actually asked to come to a meeting. But just providing this uh, only means that it falls under the Public Records Act rather than the Open Meetings Act. And I think that those two issues got conflated. But here's an example of something that took place at Hunter's Point a number of years ago, uh, 18 years ago, in fact, about retaliation against a, a contractor over reporting toxic and cleanup problems at Hunter's Point. The contractor had their contract pulled, and after that time, nothing was done. We are living with the consequences of these things, and it's going to be millions of dollars and possibly some health risks for people. So these issues linger from one, one year to the next if they don't get addressed. It's, it is a significant and serious concern. So I just, I'm putting that out, not as a, a motion at this point, but to say that I would like uh, uh, a proposal be made from CSA at the next meeting about how you would design a omnibus high-level audit to be done by an outside group, because as you said, you want a firewall between your work and the work of some of the others um, to see where things stand and where they need to go. Any other comment on that? Um, 
For the benefit of, of the committee, I think Mr. Bush over the weekend circulated an email relating to um, uh, a, to uh, a topic, and um, I had requested that the m members um, not respond to Mr. Bush's email um, because we had been told by the city attorney's office that an email being circulated to all members may be deemed to be a public uh, meeting of sorts. So can I please request the city attorney's office to comment on that and to train us as to um, what we should or should not be doing if one member is circulating an entire email soliciting discussion on a topic to all members? Yeah, I Yeah, this is Mark Blake, uh, Deputy City Attorney. I think that the uh, issue really is just kind of more process, so that it's okay for members to circulate commentary as long as it goes through your clerk or your secretary, and that that document be made available at your me next meeting, and it's a source of discussion at the meeting, but there should not be back and forth between the committee members about that item prior to the meeting. I think a direct communication in some ways promotes a kind of a back and forth versus a I'm circulating this document, giving it to the secretary to be distributed to you for discussion at the next meeting. I think it's a process question. The concern is about serial meetings that if there is a circulation and I'd like support on this item, somebody contacts you and then they contact another person and support is built behind the scenes and that can be deemed a serial meeting. So I think that it's a, a question of just process and, it, and, and a direct communication lends itself to uh, a potential violation of the Brown Act. So I think it's just a process. So that would be the admin, admonition it, of the city attorney. It was my understanding that um, this had something to do with a liaison problem Correct. too, is that the, the magic number is four. Three people, three people can talk to each other, and, and we do, but the minute you add a fourth person to that, that email chain, then you've yeah, got Yeah, but I think that the issue meeting. is developing a consensus outside of the public, the public meeting. I mean, I think <laughs> that's the concern. So yeah. discussions amongst members about agenda items prior to the meeting, I think, are problematic. Yeah, no, I know, but at, at some point we just need to get – we have to – be able to have some type of conversation. And so I, I've always been using the rule of thumb of four. Um, no, it's not, it, it's, it's not a, uh, I don't think it's a quorum issue as much as a communication that members can't circulate documents amongst themselves and communicate uh, behind the scenes on those documents and be safe <laughs> if only that communication is limited to uh, less than a quorum. So I think that I think I think what's happening is to some extent there's a <laughs> conflation between a public records uh, rule and an open meeting rule. A public records is that, as you're saying, something that went to everybody and, and appropriately through the the clerk of the of the group is a public record that can be available to anybody. It doesn't then trigger into a meeting unless, as you also indicated, there is a request for feedback and comment and a decision based or at least commentary on what was in the uh, in the email and in, my, in the case of what I did send I did not ask for any feedback until the meeting took place 
I said, I, you know, I look forward to your comments at the meeting. So I was doing uh, what I thought was due diligence to ensure that all I was doing was putting something out that could be a public record, but was not going to cross over into a public meeting. Um, I, uh, thank you for clarifying your intention. I think for the benefit of all members in the future, if you do wish to do what Mr. Bush did, I think it would be best to then send that, you know, the piece of document or your ideas to the um, secretary of the of of, the, of this group say, tomorrow, so that she could make sure that that piece of information is made available to other members. Can I add, you know, uh, the city attorney's office will follow up with this committee on permissible communications. It's a, you know, it's an area of, of concern, ambiguity, so let's see if we can't get you some training back on that specific point. And then so at your next meeting, if you allow, we'll, we'll follow up on that. Great. Public comment? Any public comment to the presentation? <laughs> I have handouts, please. Good morning, my name is Jerry Dratler and I've been working with other members of the San Francisco Land Use Coalition on reducing the frequency of unpermitted housing demolitions in San Francisco. I filed two whistleblower complaints <laughs> regarding the failure of the Department of Building Inspections to enforce Building Code Section 103A.3, demolition without permit. In both instances, the Department of Building Inspection issued a demolition permit after the property owner removed the building, so it's clear the building removal met the building code criteria for a demolition without a permit. DBI failed to enforce the penalty enumerated in building code section 103A.3. The professional auditors at the CSA could have performed a compliance audit where they logged onto the permit tracking system to determine whether a notice of violation was issued and if the penalty on the NOV was consistent with the building code requirement, a very basic compliance audit. One of my complaints was referred to the city attorney, and the second complaint, 655 Alvarado, was closed. When I send an email inquiring on the status of 655 Alvarado, the response I received, and this is a quote, appropriate action was taken and the whistleblower program now considers your complaint closed. The answer is inconsistent with the mission of a city services auditor, which is to promote transparency and accountability in city government. Not satisfied with the answer, I exchanged four Sunshine Request emails with the city services auditor. You have my last two emails and a response. When you read the emails, you will find several material weaknesses in the administration of the whistleblower program. 
I recommend that C. Goldbach and not the city services auditor retain an outside firm to conduct a complete review of the San Francisco whistleblower program. I will review a few of the weaknesses. The whistleblower program outsources some of the complaint investigations to the department where the violation occurred. The whistleblower program policy and procedure manual does not identify the circumstances where it is appropriate and inappropriate to outsource a whistleblower complaint. Also, the manual does not address the oversight required by the CSA for outsourced complaints. Two, when I tried to inquire about the status of 655 Alvarado, I was told I was not entitled to receive an answer on the investigation findings. The excuse was the San Francisco Code and the State Code, which deal with protecting the investigation materials and identity of the person who filed the complaint. The State Code, however, allows for releasing findings that serve the interest of the public. The public deserves to know why DBI is not enforcing a section of the building code they are sworn to enforce. You have the rest of my comments. Thank you. Any additional public comment? Yes, Dr. Derek Kerr again, a whistleblower. The whistleblower program labors under a moral hazard. It's part of the city family and therefore not independent. Great care is taken not to ruffle departmental feathers. Complaints are shared with the city attorney who defends accused city officials against whistleblower claims that land in court, an obvious conflict of interests. Too often, Gobach liaisons to the program are cheerleaders who do not represent the public and conduct little critical review. They absorb passive information without looking behind it. They have not looked into the rate of complainant interviews by program investigators or why that rate of interview is not disclosed. None have examined whether referring complaints back to the accused departments enables cover-ups or jeopardizes whistleblowers. They haven't examined why some complaints take over six months to investigate. We don't know if political interference, stonewalling, or lack of resources are the reason. These things happen. But all we're told is that complexity is why long delays occur. My December 2016 complaint about the Human Services Agency took 18 months to investigate. All I was told was that the case is closed. Appropriate action taken. What does that mean? In sum, I agree with Mr. Drattler that this program is too secretive and is too City Hall-centric to adequately serve the public interest and whistleblowers. As for the Citizens Audit Review Board, why not recommend an audit of the Ethics Commission? 
and why it has never sustained a claim. And we can't just accept the findings. We could say many city agencies and even the US Navy made findings that Hunter's Point was perfectly safe. But when you listen to whistleblowers look under the surface, it's not true. So many times, findings are superficial and not conclusive. So that's why we need to probe and look under the surface. Thank you. Any additional public comment? Seeing none, let's go to the next item. Item seven, presentation from Public Works regarding the 2008 and 2016 health bonds and possible action by the committee to, in response to such presentation. Good morning, Madam Chair, members of the uh, Siegelbach Committee. Uh, Joe Chin, Public Works uh, Program Manager. I'm here this morning to uh, provide an update on the Public Health and Safety Bond Program 2016. I'm also joined by uh, other members of the uh, Public Works Project Management Team and Finance uh, Team members, as well as uh, uh, client representative, client representative uh, to support in support of the program, as well as to help answer any questions. Uh, that I cannot answer myself or on specific projects. Uh, so quickly, I'm gonna give a, just a quick recap of the overall bond program. Uh, it's a 350 million bond program uh, approved by voters in June of 2016 uh, that provides funding for three client departments, uh, includes uh, 272 million for DPH, Department of Public Health, uh, 58 million for the fire department, as well as 20 million for the Department of Homelessness and Support of Housing. Uh, moving on to the executive summary, um, I want to uh, spend a few minutes to just talk at high level about kind of some of our accomplishments and, and upcoming milestones. Uh, on the Zuckerberg um, Building Five component, uh, we were uh, we've completed one one of our core projects. Uh, is an urgent care relocation project. As well, we've launched three additional projects in construction. Uh, we've also, of all the uh, 19 core projects, we've also uh, uh, are in various phases of uh, the project lifecycle, um, whether it's in design, construction, or in planning. So we've also initiated uh, seven uh, new projects that are in initial phases of design or in, in programming. And once we complete that, we can move into design quickly. Um, on the uh, community health center, uh, we have Maxine Hall that we've also finished design and also moving into uh, construction, uh, wholly, uh, uh, targeting the early part of uh, the first quarter of 2019. And on the uh, ambulance deployment facility, uh, we've also completed the design and permitting and we are now moving um, into the bidding, which started in June uh, 2018. Uh, we're targeting construction uh, to start in October. And then on the, full for, on the homeless, homelessness uh, so, uh, service site component, uh, we've also uh, made headway on 440 Turk Street. Uh, we awarded a design-built contract to Fisher Development, uh, which will allow us to fast track the design and construction uh, with uh, construction starting uh, toward the uh, end of the year and finishing up uh, next summer of 2019. And then uh, just quickly on bond sale and appropriation, uh, we have uh, completed two bond sales to date for this bond program. Uh, the first bond sale 
uh, was completed in March of 2017 uh, for 174.1 million, which provided funding for all six components. Uh, in uh, June of 2018, uh, we complete our second bond sale, uh, which, which fully funds now the ADF as well as the homeless service site components. And now moving on to the, uh, the next slide, I want to uh, spend a few minutes to just focus on each component. Uh, this is uh, slide uh, page number four uh, to look at the, uh, uh, so first uh, up would be the Zuckerberg uh, General Hospital Building 5 component. Um, in terms of the overall expenditures and encumbrances, uh, there is a uptick since our last presentation. Uh, it's, a, uh, it's primarily driven by the award of two construction contracts that totaled about 13 million. Uh, that's the 6H surge space project, as well as the rehabil rehabilitation department relocation project. Um, and then uh, another uh, accomplishment, we've also received uh, Oshpod uh, plan approval for the seismic upgrade project. This is uh, one of our uh, 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 flagship or key projects on the 19 core projects. This is uh, upgrading, the, doing a seismic retrofit of building five uh, which is, in my mind, could be one of the most challenging projects of all the 19 core projects. Uh, involves going into building five uh, that, uh, and going into 206 rooms within the building and, and doing strategically uh, or you know, surgically doing seismic retrofit on various uh, building components uh, while the building is occupied. Um, so that's uh, going to be a, t a tough challenge moving forward. Uh, so kind of. One reason that we've uh, taken a, uh, a two-phase approach on this project, uh, we are uh, launching our phase one, uh, which is focused on the south side of the building and some interior column um, so that we can then uh, vet out some of the uh, restrictive infection control requirements as well as some of the uh, uh, noise impacts or potential noise impacts and then coming up with the most, uh, you know, uh, uh, come out with mitigation measures so we can address that uh, before we do the full project. So the uh, start date uh, of our phase one is targeted for um, in the next, uh, in, within the next two months uh, before the fourth quarter of 2018. Um, okay. Uh, moving on to the Southeast Health Center uh, component. Uh, this is a uh, one of the heaviest used uh, health center facility uh, within the DPH network. Uh, it's located at 3rd Street, um, off of 3rd Street and Keith uh, in the Bayview neighborhood. Um, we are building a two-story, uh, 22,000 square feet new building uh, adjacent to the existing. Uh, we are, uh, we've completed our uh, civic design review uh, phase one back in January. Uh, we are targeting our uh, phase two review uh, later part of this month. Um, and then in terms of design, we've also completed our, uh, our schematic design earlier in the year and moving toward uh, design development and then uh, looking at construction to start um, probably the third quarter of 2019. And then uh, on the other community health centers, uh, we're focused on Maxine Hall Health Center as well as the um, Castro Mission Health Center. Maxine Hall is located uh, in the Western Edition um, District, and then we also have Castro Mission, which is obviously in the Castro District. Uh, Maxine Hall 
uh, is uh, have very complete design. We're in the DVI plan review, and we also anticipate uh, starting construction uh, first quarter 2019. Uh, there is one uh, potential risk impact. Uh, uh, we're working closely with DPH and staff uh, to help identify some possible uh, locations to relocate the clinical administrative staff within the building um, as, a, as a way to reduce risk during construction. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion and concern from staff about noise impacts. Uh, so that's one thing we're working closely with staff and their public relations person to uh, really uh, flesh that out at this point. Uh, cash remission is uh, not too far behind. We are anticipating finishing design by the end of the year and probably starting construction in the second quarter of 2019. Uh, on the uh, ambulance deployment facility, uh, this is one of the fire department projects. Uh, we have uh, completed our um, design permitting, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, bidding started in June. Uh, we actually received bids last week. Uh, we did get two bids. Um, that is currently under review. Um, so uh, currently the uh, start date for construction is October uh, of later part of this year. Uh, on the neighborhood fire station uh, component, uh, we're really focused on two scopes of work. Uh, the first one is a host tower uh, removal project. Uh, really what we're doing is mitigating the seismic risk by taking away the seismic host tower. So it may be a little bit counterintuitive, but the host tower was what's causing the issue. So one of the issues, what we're trying to solve is, uh, is, to man is to figure out how to do that without without affecting the, or addressing the historical um, concerns. We've uh, had numerous discussions with the planning department and there is historical significance to the host tower. Uh, so initially we were uh, working with the planning department to go through a full cultural uh, EIR. Uh, that was gonna take about 18 months. Uh, we've had further conversations with planning department and we think there's a quicker route to getting that, to getting through the entitlement process. Uh, which is a more in interpretive program, they call it. Um, so we're working with them to, uh, to go that route and hopefully be able to expedite the uh, entitlement so we can start construction sooner. And then the uh, last scope is uh, the generator, uh, which is currently uh, scheduled for uh, Fire Station 18, and uh, we're onboarding a design uh, cons uh, consultant to do that work. Uh, and then uh, just moving on to the homeless service site component, uh, there's uh, three scopes that we, we are tracking. Uh, first one is the 440 Turk Street, uh, which is gonna be the, uh, the central uh, administrative office for HSH, as well as a client access point. Um, and then we also have uh, three other uh, city-owned shelters that we are working on building uh, various types of building improvement projects within those sites. And then the last scope is a, a new project. It's uh, 106468 Mission. And uh, this facility, this new facility is gonna be uh, the, um, I guess it's gonna be the, uh, the office and service space for the San Francisco Homeless Outreach Team, the SF Hot Team. Um, so that's currently uh, in design.
Um, so one of the uh, accomplishments I mentioned earlier is uh, we have uh, selected a design builder to work on 440 Turk Street. That is uh, underway. Uh, we, we expect um, construction to start the later part of 2018 and then wrapping up construction by uh, summer of 2019. Uh, and then the uh, other three service sites, uh, we have completed kind of our draft um, facilities condition assessment report. Um, and uh, right now, in order to finalize the report, we are uh, finishing up the seismic assessment of these three facilities. And once that's done, then we'll have a complete report uh, that will uh, help define the project scope for these three sites and to uh, inform what design uh, should be uh, moving forward. Uh, and then the uh, last slide I have for today is uh, attachment one. Uh, this is a, uh, a high-level summary of the overall uh, program budget that, that shows the allocation of the bond funds between the first bond sale and the second, as well as the expenditures and encumbrances to date. Uh, it's the expenditures and encumbrances that it has been relatively low, um, and it's the same uh, point I brought up last time is we're still in the, a lot of these projects are still in design, so that's why the, uh, it's mostly uh, expenditures toward uh, professional fees. Uh, as we go into construction in 2019, I do expect the uptick of uh, expenditures and encumbrances for all the construction contracts. Um, I know one of the uh, uh, discussions that's been going back and forth is the accuracy of the financial data. Uh, I do want to uh, just bring up that uh, the financial data that's part of this report is, is still an estimate. It includes all the data up through May of 2018. Um, so the, um, they are more, much more accurate uh, than what was presented early in the year. Uh, they're not perfect, uh, but I know our design, our uh, public works accountants and financial team is working on uh, uh, kind of doing the final reconciliation of all the labor, um, labor expenditures and I uh, foresee uh, finishing that effort in, in a few months. Um, at, at this point, that concludes my uh, presentation, and uh, my team and I are available to uh, answer any questions you may have. So will the um, bond liaison <laughs> share with us your conversations with uh, the project manager? Yes. Um, so. Uh, I have a number of comments, um, a lot like last time I made comments. Uh, but before I get into that, I want to thank the, um, uh, the client departments um, for coming to these meetings, responsibility, um, co-responsibility for, for these efforts. Um, my question is, does anybody, does anybody from a client department have any um, comments or uh, issues you'd like to bring up? Um, this is, we, we provide governance on behalf of uh, you also, and so we, we want to make sure that you have the opportunity to to uh, speak. I don't know who to look at, but I'm just looking generally. At... Okay, we're here for you. If you ever, <laughs> if you ever um, want to talk about the, the bond um, and the services that are being provided. Um, it's my interpretation of the services that are being provided by DPW um, is, uh, is, is very good. I mean, I think that they're, you, you know my opinion about the types, these types of bonds. If this report seems confusing with lots of different aspects to it, that's because it's confusing with lots of different aspects to it. Okay. It is very hard to keep up with. 
Um, that is the nature of the way the bond was written, and um, DPW is, and under Joe's leadership, is doing their best, I think. I think that they um, are constantly coming up with new ways of working um, to uh, deal with some of the most challenging aspects of this, um, particularly around uh, what's going on at the Zuckerberg um, General Hospital. Um, and I appreciate your, your efforts towards that. Um, one of the things that, that I'd like to recommend, and I, I'm, Peg, I'm sorry, I should have said this when Tonya, Tonya was in the room. Um, I, I think that uh, there are, that, that in this type of bond and how it's structured, it is costing the city more money. Uh, because there's so many projects, because DPW is constantly going back out to, um, you know, different design firms, different bidding. You know, this is not like building General Hospital, um, where um, you know you're you're getting, you know, you've got, you know, process, you know, stages you're going through. You're going through them directly, um, and so one of the things I, I notice. Um, the uh, the ESER bond is also 20, uh, 2014 ESER bond is a lot like this, lots of different projects, um, and so I think that um, uh, I would love for the ESER bond um, uh, audit that is ex that is um, scheduled um, for this uh, fiscal year among the auditor department to include. Um, uh, some scope around what is the cost of this? What, what is this type of bond costing us? Um, uh, and for my personal posi position, um, you know, how, how do we um, govern this? I mean, again, these, the reports are fantastic. Thank you, Joe. But it, it, I don't know how to get to um, uh, uncovering, um, you know, what, what the challenges are without, you know, directly asking the client departments um, who also are getting the same kinds of reports. Um, so that, that's, uh, you know, when we look at something like, uh, as Joe said, there's a challenging bidding environment when you're bidding, mul you know, many, many projects and 19, I think you're, you know, is, you, what you rolled up to is a small, is a, is a small number. Um, that is a lot of work. And so, um, uh, again, this is, I'm getting back on my soapbox. You guys heard this from me, from me before. Um, but, uh, but I, I would love to, um, uh, at least get some understanding about how, how we can move forward um, with if these types of bonds are continuing to come, which we all believe that they are from the capital programming um, uh, uh, presentation. Um, I think that we need to figure out how to, how to handle this from a governance perspective. Thank you. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> question on the ambulance deployment uh, facility. Uh, you said uh, just two bids were received. I was just curious how they, <clears throat> the value of those bids related to the engineer's estimate and if they're having potentially any impact on the overall budget of $48.6 million. Um, so the ADF project, we're using a, a new uh, delivery method that's allowed by Chapter 6. It's called Best Value. So we've uh, gone ahead and received bids, but we haven't opened up the price yet. We're currently evaluating the, the non-cost component. So that would be about a two-week process. So once that's done, then we can then look at kind of the total best value between a percent of the non-cost criteria versus the cost criteria. Okay, so there's still an, a chance you might not accept either bid. Uh, if. Yes. Okay. And I just, again, uh, want to thank you for the presentation, but I don't know if I'm right, but this may be the first detailed quarterly report, and it really, I was a little confused, but when I read this, it explained a lot of things, answered a lot of questions. So I really, really want to thank you and the staff for doing the detailed quarterly report. And 
I'm really looking forward to when that red financial data disappears because, again, I think having complete, current, and accurate detailed project expenditure budget information is critical to this committee to oversee and ensure bond funds are being spent in accordance with the voters. So I appreciate that effort, and I'll just say at this time, also the controller's office did present the summary bond expenditure report for the first time, and I really, really appreciate that. So thank you. Um, Joe, I wanted to follow up on, because I did have a comment on the, 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 the data, the, the red, your red uh, comments. Mm -hmm. It said that these, the data is as of June 2017, and we all know about the new financial system, and it is disturbing that we're using um, old data. Do you, um, do you have any uh, idea when you will be able to be up and running with more, with really accurate data. I know that various departments have different timelines of arriving at that spot. So could you share with us a little bit more on that? Because that is critical to, you know, to our job here. Uh, sure. Uh, I'll defer that question to our uh, Julia Dawson. She's our deputy director with our finance department of public works. And uh, she can probably give a more accurate timeline and in terms of how we'll get the data corrected. Thanks, Joe. Um, Julia Dawson, Public Works. I guess I think I need to say that the reason the numbers are estimated is because they're not full, but that doesn't mean that they're just reflecting numbers from June. So any number that we can verify that's non-labor and it's in the right place, it's in the report. The bigger issue for us is the labor um, we're about 93% done moving the labor and verifying that it's all in the right place. Uh, and we're in the home stretch now in the next two weeks, we'll be done. So, but once we're done, then it's up to the analysts to confirm and there may well be adjustments they need to make, but the bulk of the cost will be there. Um, you already know a bit about the challenges. Um, many of the charges in this bond uh, are actually in the right place because it's a new bond and it benefited from being set up a little later. Some of the older bonds that are more complex and have a lot more projects that are old, uh, like the Easter bond, had a bit more work to do. Uh, I, um, one of the big issues for us is allocations. So we can show you direct labor, but we have a very complex overhead model and that had to be done manually. So, so it sounds like helped. you're very close to being to having um, numbers that you can rely on. Yes, we are. So hopefully, the next time you publish something on your website, uh, that's definitely that would be prior to your next appearing in front of this committee. The public will have fairly accurate data. You, will, you would have removed this footnote. Right. But I do want to let you know that even though it says estimated, that's really out of a sense of caution on our part. Mm -hmm. The bulk of the good charges are there. It's just that they may be still a little understated. That's the issue for us. Thank you. And I, and I would also note <coughs> the other, <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> quarterly report we got was from the um, <coughs> Transportation and Road Improvements Bond, which I think is primarily an MTA. But it also had the same caveat on the financial data. So yeah. I'm hoping 
we're getting oh, very we're, we're, I was going to say we're going to have a liaison meeting with them with MTA on that 2014 transportation roadway bond <clears throat> before the next meeting and so I I'm not going to go into this report that we have well I will go into it with them when we meet but I'm not going to have anything to say about it today I have a couple of questions if I might please um, with respect to uh, SF General Building 5, um, if I understood you correctly, if I read this accurately, it is anticipated to do a seismic upgrade to Building 5, uh, which is its current use as a hospital while occupied. So in San Francisco, just to give you some context, and I'm sure you're aware, there's lots of, lots of hospitals. Sometimes they build entirely new wings next to the existing hospital. Sometimes they demo a floor or two and vacate the floor and what have you. Um, it, is, it is, as far as I can recall, unusual to do a structural seismic upgrade for occupancies of a building whose use is hospital while occupied. And in my mind, there is a potential, you know, mentioning challenges and how to administer and, and have oversight over expenditures. There are challenges related to that. Uh, seismic upgrade of an occupied hospital building. There are challenges related to that proposal um, that are beyond the average number of challenges that are usual and customary, like you know, hose towers in a, in a firehouse. The potential for cost overruns related to these unforeseen, unexpected events that may occur being higher than average, in my view. I'm wondering if you share that view, number one. And number two, if so, what steps, if any, can you take uh, to anticipate as much of the complexities that are unforeseen at this time as, as, a, re, as a reasonable evaluation can, can conclude. And the third question is, when hospitals get upgraded systems, plumbing, electrical, HVAC, demo of floors, what have you, there is an analysis as it relates to vacate those floors, go in, knock it out, reoccupy the floors, um, as opposed to work around them. Because many times, you know, hospital floors are being refitted and, and they're worked while occupied on certain systems. But it's pencils to not vacate, as opposed to pull everyone out. So there's an analysis that occurs. Here we say we're going to do seismic upgrading, structural upgrading of an occupied building. And I'm wondering if their analysis has been done where we say that will be cost effective um, as opposed to vacate this thing, do the usual and customary seismic upgrade, and reoccupy as quickly as possible. So those are my three questions. Do you think, do you agree that it's higher than average potential for unforeseen challenges in this particular project. Uh, if so, is there any steps that you can take? And has an analysis been done that shows that pencils to avoid those unforeseen overture, uh, uh, the potential for unforeseen uh, expenditures versus 
what costs are associated with vacating that building, and that's not going to be inexpensive, and then knock the thing out and reoccupy. Thank you. Um, so thank you for the question. It, it definitely is a, a, a great question that keeps me up all night <laughs> in terms of how to do that. Yeah. Um, I think the, the reality is there is no space that's big enough that will house the, the, all the occupants of the building that we can move into. That definitely is a higher risk. Uh, we are managing that risk, uh, both from uh, kind of going with best practices. We are, as I mentioned earlier, we're doing kind of a, a phase, a two-phase approach that allows us in terms of uh, the, the design team, the, um, and as well as the environment, health, and safety with DPH to really understand how do we do it uh, using uh, best practice and to minimize impact. We know there will be impact, that's a given. It's just what are some of the ways we can to mitigate that? Um, so we are kind of uh, trying to dial in the right approach. Uh, and then kind of a, on the parallel path, we're also onboarding a uh, CMGC contractor, similar to some of the larger projects. We did something similar when we did the new hospital uh, on Zuckerberg, where we can bring on board a contractor that can help us really uh, flesh out the phasing details. We're having weekly meetings with uh, Department of Public Health to really map out uh, what locations we can work on first, because really is focused on, it's, it's part of the concept, we're not really working with the, uh, maybe I'll clarify, we're not doing work when the, um, when the patients are in the space, we have to vacate, let's say we have two rooms that are, out, uh, that are uh, in the works to do seismic retrofit, we're gonna have to vacate those two or three rooms are being impacted. They'll have to relocate to a temporary space, whether it's in the building or somewhere else. And then we'll have a contractor on board quickly to get that work done, do all the, the scope, get approved by Oshpod, get it um, then recommissioned, and then move the occupants back in. So doing that 206 times um, is the challenge. And there's foundation work. Uh, yes. Yeah. So, 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 for instance, the building we're in, mm -hmm. City Hall, when they did the seismic upgrade on most of the works in the basement, and it's put on pads, they closed the building because it was less expensive. So I'm sure you've looked, well, have you looked at that? And if so, you have mentioned that there isn't room. And I'm sure you've contacted, you've arrived at, You've reached out and made that determination somehow that there aren't other hospitals out there where we can find 20 beds there and 30 beds there or whatever, correct? Uh, that's correct. Uh, it's, it's mostly an effort that's been uh, through Department of Public Health. Uh, I work with uh, the client representative and they've, that was one of the first uh, questions we looked at yeah. uh, is, you know, are we able to vacate Building 5? But yeah. unfortunately there is not enough space uh, there's seven floors in Building 5 with a lot of services, and it's used, you know, all the time. Uh, so there is uh, no such thing as shutting down for, you know, a year to do the work. Um, uh, in terms of foundation, uh, the foundation work is limited to uh, one location where we're doing a, a new seismic joint. We're putting a new seismic joint. Uh, actually, we're increasing the joint from six inches to two feet. Uh, and then uh, once we increase the joint, 
we have to do the associated structural improvements at both ends. So um, we understand the challenges in front of us and we're, we're doing what we can. We've, uh, we know this is also a old building, 70s. We have hazardous material that, that we know are there. We've already done thorough uh, sampling of all these spaces to make sure we address uh, all, the, all those issues that we can anticipate. Um, so I hope I answered your question. You did, thank you. Any other comments? Uh, yeah, me, okay. Um, Joe, I, I want to ask about um, the ambulance redeployment, or pardon me, deployment facility. Um, did you say that, they, that you got, that this was a rebid, or was this the first bid? Uh, this is a first bid. Okay, Yeah. and you said a best value procurement. Is this a design build contract? Uh, it's not design build. Um, it's, it's, it's taking a uh, a model similar to design bid build, but we've added a non-cost criteria, and the two the cost criteria plus the non-cost criteria will give the whichever gives us the um, the lowest price. So there is some uh, conversion between a non-cost criteria into dollar amount, and then based on that we could then. Uh, award the contract based on based on the best value of the non-cost versus cost criteria. I don't think I've ever heard of that before. <laughs> I mean, usually, you know, when it's design, bid, build, you put the design on the street and you get a price for it. What what difference do you expect to see between the two bidders in, or any of the bidders, you know, in 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 something that is design, bid, build? I mean, a design, bid, build, it's the it's a contract of adherence. They got to give you everything that you write down. So I don't, I don't see where the flexibility is. And, and just give me a short answer. I don't want to bother everybody. <laughs> <laughs> um, so with the uh, design, with the best value approach, it allows the design team or the, the project team uh, to include certain uh, you know, technical criteria, for example, for example schedule. I believe we have a, uh, an item that if the contract is able to reduce the overall project schedule, then there'll be additional points awarded to the contractor. Then that will then that coupled with a the um, bid that they submit to the city will then determine the best value. Okay. Um, so we do have a full design that's already been permitted approved. It's just the selection of the co contractor um, includes a non-cost criteria. One of them, I think, is the schedule component. So schedule would be the primary one, then. Yeah. Um, that's one component. I'd, 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 if you would like to uh, have more questions specifically about what the uh, items are, we can. I can ask the project manager to uh, provide an explanation, or we can talk yeah, offline. I'd, I'd like to hear about that, and then I'll report back to the committee maybe at the next meeting. And you and I are going to be talking about something else anyway, so it'll be a good chance to lengthen that conversation. Um, one last question. Um, under project controls, you know, in those pie charts that you put, that you included with each of the projects, use, what is this in, within that scope? Does that include design, for instance? Uh, yes, that's correct. Project controls is a, uh, it's, uh, it's your typical soft versus construction. So project controls is everything that's non-construction related, which includes design fees, permitting, uh, any kind of uh, professional service, uh, either construction management, uh, project management support, everything that is non-construction related. Yeah. 
I'm it's sure part, I've asked that, that before because I've, I, you know, the numbers are pretty high for, for project controls, usually project control as well. You know, the processing the pay applications and giving us schedule updates, I say, yeah, you got to do that, but I wouldn't want to pay a third of the, product, the construction product contract value for that alone. But that answers the question. Like I said, I'm, I'm almost certain I've asked it once before. Um, just finally, for everyone's benefit here, on we, I haven't reported on, I guess it was the 2008 bond for the, the new facility that if you want to take a look at a picture of it, it's on the cover page of the report, the thing off to the left of the area that's kind of outlined in orange. Um, there's nothing much, that, that project is done, it's occupied, but the only outstanding item on that are some claims, some subcontractor pass-through claims that got to the city. And I will be talking to the attorney who is working on that for the city, uh, last name is O'Neill, uh, Elaine O'Neill, and I'll report back on what Ms. O'Neill tells us at the next meeting. That's it. Go. Mm -hmm. May I invite public comment, if any, at this uh, point? I've, I've, oh, I'm sorry. Well, you, just, you're next. Yes. Thank you. I sorry. just wanted to uh, follow up on something that Commissioner Chu said about uh, the fact that DPW is responsible for not only this project, but a number of others. Our responsibility is looking at whether things are on scope, on time, and on budget. From these experiences, are you learning information that you're passing through about how to better design future bonds, because we have a number of bonds that are in the pipeline. Uh, yes, uh, it's uh, definitely one of the things we've learned. Uh, on every project we deliver, we have lessons learned. Um, you know, obviously, one of the, uh, on the Community Health Center, one thing we've identified is a seismic scope or seismic retrofit is, is one, one scope that really we should look at first. So we've done that. We've gone back uh, and started doing a uh, um, seismic assessment on all the primary, uh, primary care or community health care facilities. We've done our seismic assessment for Chinatown Public Health Center. We're also starting three additional clinics uh, that, that will undergo a seismic evaluation. So the, the, based on the uh, results of the seismic evaluation, that will then to help us uh, better size the, the project scope for the upcoming bond uh, that DPH is working on for 2022. Thank you. May I invite public comment at this point, if any? Seeing none, let's proceed to the last item. Item eight, opportunity for committee members to comment or take action on any matters within the committee's jurisdiction. Madam Chair, do you want me to just go through them one by one or as we get to them? Do you want me to read all of them off now? Um, I think you can just uh, read them off real quickly. We're running out of time, so I'd okay. like to be able to get as many of this done as possible. Okay. So there are several here. A, upcoming issuances from public finance, the website redesign, the public satisfaction survey, expenditures audit, standardized templates, the GOBOC annual report for the fiscal year 2017-18, and the GOBOC fiscal year 2018-19 work plan, which is an approval item. All of these items are found in other reports in your packet. Uh, perhaps we could have a brief um, uh, update from public finance because it's just giving a heads up on your, your, your pipeline. Sure. Um, 
Good morning, committee members. It's Anna Van Degno, the director of the Office of Public Finance. We've got uh, three uh, bond issues that we anticipate in the next um, 12 months. The mm -hmm. first will be uh, to fund affordable housing, about $35 million. Um, the second will be for um, waterfront parks, uh, about $3 million. And then finally, uh, last would be public health, $127 million. And so those are scheduled. Uh, the first one would be the seismic safety loan program, which is also for affordable housing, um, would be scheduled to close first uh, in the spring of 2019, and then the other two in the summer of 2019. Good. Thank you. Can we proceed with the next item? Website redesign. And uh, again, we've been talking about this for a couple of meetings. It is now live. So please go and take a look. Um, nice clean look as we've discussed. I'll just call a couple things to your attention. The front page here um, is a general overview of the committee and then there's a t uh, next meeting and last meeting are the first two things that come up and you can click on those and get to the agenda and all the supporting documents. There's a graphic for each of your bond programs and when you click over to those you'll see the um, uh, most recent status report and the most recent presentation. The archive is five years of historical reports going back. We certainly have the all old ones, but no need for more than five years of reports um, on the site. Um, so each of the program areas is like that. Um, just call your attention to two more things that they call it a hamburger in the upper right hand corner. So when you click on that, you can go link to any of the program areas or to the supporting information about the committee itself and that which is also listed in the banner at the bottom of the page. So again, I won't click around on here, but all those links are live. I have tested them. They've corrected all the errors and things that I saw. If you see anything or you want any tweaks, please let us know. It's easy enough to uh, change this, but um, we think it's much easier to find your information and. Um, it's nice not to have all that old archive material kind of getting in the way of being able to view the current. So um, that's the report on the website. I'd like to point out that it would be good to have the whistleblower program specifically called out on the web page. It says city services, but it doesn't have whistleblower. And I think it also would be good to note for people who, who go there that there are other places besides uh, Gobach and the whistleblower program that people will need to know about, like DHR, COSW, and so forth, so that people don't think that this is the end of the road. It is just part of the, of the journey. So I think that if, if I may make a suggestion, we have several items um, uh, to go through in the next 10 minutes or so, uh, one of which requires kind of action on this committee. Um, this is a good beginning. May I please encourage members, if you have any specific ideas, please address them to PEG uh, relating to ideas or relating to the website and just not to, to... point out, whistleblower is if you go to the CSA link, which is on there. Whistleblower is one of the links there. So it's two clicks to get to Whistleblower. If you prefer, we can move it on to the front page, but that's how it's done. I'd like the front page, please. Mm. I agree. It looks fantastic. Yes, it does. Thank you so much. 
Um, again, very quickly, public satisfaction survey. We included a sample in your packet of the pretest of the public satisfaction survey that the contractor was working on last week. Um, we have made a couple of adjustments to it, just specifically to let you know that um, when we talk to people, we actually tell them the improvements that were paid for under the bond program. Um, so they have that information. We had really good uh, response rate, willingness of people to fill it out. So they are happy with the pretest, and they're going to go ahead with doing all the translations and things like that that are necessary to proceed with the public satisfaction survey. Fantastic. It's very, it's very well thought out. Will we, um, can we um, uh, put on our future agenda seeing the results of that? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, we anticipate finishing all the testing in the next couple of months. There'll be analyticals performed by our office and by the contractor and a write-up that um, we might have available by December. Um, so I'll, I'll let you know as it proceeds. And at that point, we'll evaluate the, the value of doing, doing this. Another, right. Uh, um, the next item, expenditures audits. The, they were listed in Tanya's presentation, I believe. If you have any comments or thoughts about those, um, you're welcome to get back in touch with Tanya. Um, standardized uh, uh, templates. Um, we agreed in our pre-meeting with Brenda that we'll work on this later in the fiscal year after you've kind of stabilized your work plan and a couple other things have settled. Um, no updates other than that. Um, the GOBAC annual report for the fiscal year. Um, Brenda, do you want to speak to this or? Um, yes, this we as members, do you recall, we do an annual report that's a, that's sent to the mayor and the board of supervisors and. Um, for this year's, um, you will be asked to um, write a short um, report on on your liaison bond or program that you were involved with. And I believe that Moro, she will be sending to each of us um, a sample of what was done last year. And um, she will be sending it to you and will give you a due date of when to when to write your report and get it back to her. And our report will have a cover page and will list um, several pages of, of our report, which is, I believe it was like a, a paragraph or two. So uh, just be on the lookout for more. Uh, on that, uh, in the p past couple of years, the controller's uh, report has also been, I think, attached. Yes. Is, is there, will we be able to see a draft or have that? Uh, before we write I, up our... I don't think the timing will go with your report, and it's just because some of the same issues as we've talked about, about how the financials from FSP, we need them to be complete and clean, which is being done for the fiscal year end, for us to complete our report. And so the sequence will be clean financials, CAFR, and then our bond report will well, use I... the same core information. And I think you want to issue your annual report before that will all be completed. So this year we may not attach that report. Okay. It'll follow. I, again, I think the financials, at least in my portion, just, will be a part of our... And just one note, I gave you a sample of what you did last year in your packet, but I, I'll get the template out to you today in case you want to just update the template. <laughs> yeah. So the last item is the work plan? The work plan, but also just to note, Peg, you did include the financials. Um, that is in the, for your for this committee. Or that is in your packet under other reports. So the last item is the work plan that uh, that you've been given. Um, it 
shows the group of uh, bonds and the expected um, presentation in the in this current as next fiscal year. So, are there any comments? We have pretty much uh, structured the same. Each bond will receive will will be required to give two presentations um, this year, each bond and each program. Yeah, I um, uh, I think I said this before that I, I have um, concerns about how that our time, <laughs> not just today, but but in general. Um, and I think one of the ways we could be more efficient with our time is to uh, focus on the highest risk, risk bonds and less on the others. Um, and so, uh, looking through all of this, my recommendation is um, we just you know so uh, in June the parks bonds had an audit. The audit, and if you look in um, somewhere in our, our packet, the audit came out um, very very favorable. I forget. How, what Tanya's um, title was, but it was very favorable. So I, I would recommend um, taking that off the September 24th meeting and just um, talking about it in March 25th. I, I think there's a parks bond on the ballot, or there might be ones in the ballot, so that would be a good time to talk about parks again. Um, and then move something from, you know, sort of move every, move something up from 19th and just sort of break it out a little bit. We did discuss this a bit, maybe Peg, you could um, uh, share with us um, the justification, some of these older bonds, I guess. We, we'd been looking at a group of bonds. Um, and when you look at a group of bonds, um, s some are older than others. So the time that we, uh, the, pres the presenters um, will be encouraged to, um, kind of scale back, if you will, the almost finished bonds. But for ease of overseeing and monitoring them, it makes sense to look at a bond group. Uh, Peg, could you can yes. clarify that? That's true. I mean, the parks bond, again, if you look at the three different sequences being reported in the same presentation, 2008 is almost completely spent out, the others less so. And we'll encourage all the presenters to focus their time on the things which are current. Um, I'm not sure I can respond to Kristen's comment about the Parks Bond in particular. It's very active. It's got a lot of projects going on. I mean, it things um, it just because of the variety and the number of projects, there's a lot of movement there. That might be a good reason to make sure that you see them twice. Um, but that's up to you. But uh, I think that we could have further discussions um, as we meet with Ben as far as exactly when we could swap some one bond group for another. So that's not a big deal. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that we, if possible, um, there's, again, there's four um, audits that Tanya's doing this year. And so if we can coordinate um, both the, I mean, you know, so so the Parks Bond um, audit went out in June. It would be great to hear Tanya talk a little bit about their findings while we talk about, um, you know, while we have them come up and, and talk about it. And if we can coordinate some of that timing with um, the other um, audits that are scheduled. So you, the, the, the comment is really trying to sync up the presentations with the actual planned audits. Yes, we'll do that. Okay. I'd just like to uh, uh, say that while the agendas are generally set at, at this meeting for the next coming meeting, it'd be a good idea to touch base in, with any of us shortly before <clears throat> the meeting is in time so that additional items can come up. For example, 
since the last meeting that we had, uh, we've had a, a, a mayoral election, a new board president, and all the rest of that. And so it, it could well result in a, a decision to, to review and update what we were planning on the agenda since that was set in May. Uh, so I'd like to ask that. And then the second thing is I'd like to say that, again, I'm going to bring forward the issue of a, a more omnibus audit, outside audit review of how the city protects the taxpayers and uh, the citizens from wrongful actions and so forth, of which the whistleblower is a part. I'd like to just comment on your first point. Uh, what we have laid out are the work plans and the, and the scheduled meetings themselves. So any member who wishes to, to put or suggest an item on the agenda, um, they, are, they are perfectly free to, to send an email to the chair, vice chair, and Ben as a controller, um, as to any additional items, uh, agenda you would like to put on the, on, on, on the meeting agenda. But it is the purview of the chair and the vice chair in conjunction with the controller to finalize that agenda. So you know the meeting, so if you have any specific ideas or suggestions, you are free to send them to, to us. Also, may I just note, I, I need to be included in that because yes, I do sorry. the draft agendas. And the, if you're adding things to the agenda, it can't be added the week the packet is going out. We need to have that additional item in sync with when the chair and vice chair do their pre-meeting. It's a good 10 days ahead of the meeting, that, as a professional courtesy. Yes. That so just underscores my point about advance notice. Well, you, you, have a, you, you have an agenda, you, you have a date that in the next five, uh, this is the first of our six meetings, so you have the five meeting dates. So if you have, you know, a, a, an idea, you have a suggestion, you are free at any point prior to those dates to address it to the chair and vice chair and to Ben as a control because he staffs us as to what you wish to be included. I'm not trying to be critical, but let's point out that we had to go through several iterations to make sure we were having this meeting this time. So you well, really the, don't the, know. The only reason this meeting is fine. It, it's was, fine. it was scheduled, it. but people, we couldn't get, we couldn't get uh, availability because of summer schedules. So this meeting was established in the beginning of the last fiscal year. However, it was delayed due to people's availability. So, you understand my point. So, do we so need more comment? Do we need a motion yeah. to approve the 1819 work plan as may be amended to coordinate with the uh, controller's planned expenditure audits? I so move. Second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Good. Um, any other public comment relating to any matters? Seeing none, meeting is adjourned.